<laughs> anyway, I'm Tina. Um, I am glad to be able to share the message with you guys today. We are in a sermon series about the power of our stories the past few weeks now. And in this series, we've been looking at big themes around stories. Started out with a message about how our stories are not weapons. Talked about the role of imagination and childlikeness in our stories, how our stories can rhyme with the bigger story of God. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the actual stories of specific people in the Bible. A couple weeks ago, the story of Abram slash Abraham through the lens of waiting. Uh, and last week, the story of Moses through the lens of calling. One of the central uh, texts for this time together has been from the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, chapter 12, verse 11, where it says that we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Our stories, our testimony. They join with the eternal work of Jesus to overcome evil forever. This is very intense, but also kind of cool. So we've been looking at that over the past few weeks. This week, we will be looking into the story of Jesus and specifically what that story has to teach us about the experience of being wronged. Being wronged. Being on the receiving end of unfairness and injustice. Fun topic, right? Uh, but for, if we're going to do a whole sermon series about the human story, then the experience of being wronged really can't be avoided. The experience of suffering, but specifically that texture of suffering because of somebody else doing something messed up. I can bet $1 million that I don't have that all of us in this room can relate in some way to this feeling. Uh, some of us relate to this feeling in a chronic or constant way. We feel wronged perpetually by the systems that we swim in. The systems that govern our housing, our education, our employment prospects, the amount of money we make, our access to basic support networks and safety nets at every level, for some of us are actually wronging us daily and always. Some of us relate to this feeling of being wronged in an intimate way, like in relation to our very bodies. Um, Maybe our bodies feel like they set us up to be disproportionately wronged in different ways, whether that's through our bodies not working the way they were designed to through a particular experience of disability um, or other ways, the ways our bodies interact with the world, the systems around us, whether that's our race, our ethnic background, our gender expression and identity, or an intersectional mix of all of the above. Apart from this, or on top of all this, most of us experience being wronged in concentrated doses like in waves or in seasons of life. This could be a disrespectful boss at a specific job that just simply will not see your value, or a significant other who just will not do their part bearing the burdens of home care and just doesn't seem to quite care about how that feels like for you. Or maybe it's a particular hater or backstabber in your circle of influence who isn't being held accountable and it's infuriating. Some of us here can relate to this theme at a visceral interpersonal level right now because of an unfair situation that is actively ongoing. Maybe the perpetrator of that wrong is sitting across the aisle in this room. Maybe it feels like it's the church itself, this particular church, the church as a whole that is the perpetrator of wrong. I just wanna say, this is not just like theoretical stuff. This is very raw and this is very real for some of us here 
today, and I am not taking any of that lightly. But I do think that being wronged is a very common, very consistent, very universal human experience. We're always being wronged by something or someone to different degrees and in different ways for our whole lives. And we are in good company. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, we have this encouraging word from the Lord. Oh, wait, nope, sorry. It's not in a slide. Don't worry about it. I will read it to you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Well, dang, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> he hates you, hating me first. Uh, there is some encouragement to be had there. As much as I would prefer that verse to say, don't worry, the world won't hate you so long as you follow me right. doesn't say that, but it does say that Jesus, God incarnate, knows a thing or two about the particular brand of suffering that comes from being wronged by other people. And I think that there's power for us to hold on to in and through the story of Jesus' own experience on the receiving end of unfairness and injustice. So before we dive deeper into this, I would love to pause for a moment and pray for us, if you would join me in that. Dear God, we've invited you here in our songs together and in our prayers, but I just invite you once again um, I, and I invite all of us uh, to turn our attentions toward you. I invite your spirit to move in this room, to stir up in us what is true. Father, take the words that I'm saying and um, let what is helpful and good land like water on soil to grow life. And let whatever is unhelpful just fall away. Um, would you speak to us? Would you comfort us? Would you wrestle with us, draw us into something good and gospel in this tender and difficult area of the human experience. We give you this time. We give you this message. We give you these moments. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to look at four ways, sort of textures, to how Jesus interacts with being wronged in his recorded life and ministry. Each of these four comes up at different moments of unfairness or injustice, but they're all sort of related to this bigger story of Jesus and his friends. Um, doing life with his friends, how does he experience wrong there? How does he navigate that? Um, through the story of Jesus, we'll see how he shows us a holy way to lean into being hurt, to lean into anger, to lean into our need and our weakness, and how to worship in the face of being wronged. We'll learn about hurt, anger, need, and worship. Before we dig into the specific story of Jesus' relationship to his friends towards the end of his life and ministry, I want to start out by just sort of being real together about what our responses to being wrong typically look and feel like. Now, the things I'm going to say, these aren't necessarily all sinful or bad responses. They're just human. When we're wronged or treated unjustly or unfairly, there's certain things that just naturally happen, sometimes an unconscious knee-jerk reaction, uh, sometimes necessary strategies for us to keep going in this life. The first response to being wrong that is very normal and human for us that comes to mind for me is something I will call the fetal position. It's just like, y'all know that experience of curling up into the experience of being victimized by a particular wrong thing. Every once in a while, there's no other choice like this. Like, if you've ever been punched in the stomach, I have not been punched in the stomach. But I imagine if you are punched in the stomach, you got to go, oh, right? You double over because you can't not because it hurts. Um, and so I think sometimes in our life, we do that, like, oh, 
punch in the stomach thing around our being wronged. And we just sort of sit in the wrong that's been done to us and curl up around it, and it's just a sucky thing. Um, and I think that sometimes this like fetal position mode is a, is a tool for us too, a way to like hold our own hurt or like hold ourselves together in the experience of something super messed up. We can like tell stories to ourselves and to others about the unfairness that's happened. And as we do so, it's almost like you're curling in like a self hug because the, the world isn't hugging you or holding you right. Um, so it's really understandable. And every once in a while, the fetal position can like make a turn to being less than fully helpful. Have any of you ever in that, been in that place yourself or had a friend in this place where you simply cannot not talk about a particular experience of being wronged? Like where everything is just colored by it or drowned in it, it doesn't matter what the topic of conversation starts at, it always ends up circling back to this one experience of unfairness or victimization. There was an employee I used to work with at a former workplace that will not be named, and that person had a really, really, really hard time with our boss. He didn't hate her in an I actively wish harm upon your life kind of way, but he very much hated the experience of being actively wronged by this person in such a way that it took over his mind and body. And so for a while there, it didn't really matter where the conversation started, we could, like, there are multiple experiences. We'll talk about the busted coffee in the break room, or we'll talk about the latest Taylor Swift song, or dating apps, completely random, right? And then the conversation always ends with, but our boss, though, can you believe, you know? And then we tell, it's almost the same story over and over. And I'm like, I do believe, I experience, I agree. And we just kind of stay there. But it, it, that's sort of what it felt like, a fetal position season for this person. Nothing was actually changing about that situation in the sharing of it, right? Nothing was really moving forward, but that's just honestly where things were, curled up around a particular experience of hurt. Show of hands, has anyone yourself ever been there? Hmm? Liars, more of you. If you're not sure, ask your friends, have I ever been in this place? They'll tell you, it's fine. Um, another natural response, I think, to being wronged is anger, anger. Anger directed at the perpetrator that usually ends with some sort of call out or cut off. I did this emotional health course training thing once. I talked about feelings. There's like a color wheel. You've seen the wheel of all the different feelings and all the things. And so, and I was saying how our emotions are actually helpful because they're trying to tell us something. Wise words. Um, and anger was described as the, the emotion that's trying to tell us about a felt injustice. And I was learning that it's worth paying attention to our anger because it's communicating to us that something is not right. There's been an injustice at play that needs to be addressed. And so, of course, it makes perfect sense. Whenever we are wronged, anger rises up. Um, and anger can be righteous and good and necessary and healthy. I want to say that clearly. Some folks grew up in a tradition where it's like, you better not be angry, suppress all your feelings. That's not helpful. Um, but, of course, we also know that there are times when anger about something isn't necessarily expressed helpfully, right? Maybe the anger isn't directed, expressed at the perpetrator, but only like around other people about the perpetrator, and it doesn't like quite, uh, even if it's cathartic at the moment, doesn't actually end up being helpful. We can also think of times when anger just takes the driver's seat against the perpetrator and it goes less than awesomely. A couple of, the internet is full of examples of this. One thing that comes to mind, there's that moment where Will Smith like slapped Chris Rock in the face, remember that? I won't say anything about that. I don't know about that, but uh, that happened. 
that's a thing that happened. Um, or any video about like uh, Black Friday at a Walmart, you know, anger can take the driver's seat. Like perceived wrong goes south. Um, these things don't always end great. But I'm not casting judgment, just saying that this is one of the very normal, very human ways that we respond to being wronged by other people. Okay, the last one I'll mention here, beyond the fetal position and rage, is our human ability to put up, just put up walls and keep it pushing. This is what happens when we suffer a wrong. And in response, we do our best to avoid thinking about it or talking about it altogether. We stuff it deep, deep down, we swallow it whole, and we just keep going. This is a particular dynamic I actually see a lot in my clients at work. I'm an immigration lawyer by trade. I do humanitarian immigration law. And a lot of my clients, because of the line of work, are survivors of some sort of unspeakable wrong that has been done to them. And uh, some of them, sure, are very forthcoming about what happened, how that feels. They talk about it. They talk about it a lot um, freely, and they express that feeling. But most of them, I will say, uh, have had no other option but to be super duper strong and do everything in their power to immediately get over it or at least pretend to. Um, a lot of the people I work with in the space of my work are moms. Most of them, I would say, a lot of them are single moms um, who don't have much of a support network. They left them back home in their home country. And so they have all, multiple mouths to feed and bills to pay, and neither the fetal position nor honest anger would actually be that likely to help them survive. So they don't necessarily take space to cry or grieve. They don't necessarily ask for help from other people. They don't show weakness or dwell on their hurt. They move on. But as they do, they do so really carefully in a posture that's more self-protective. Just don't rely too much on other people. Don't open up. Do your best to figure it out on your own. A lot of us end up here in response to being wronged. Another show of hands. Have any of you ever felt like in a situation you've had to move forward in this self-protective, just keep it pushing, keep going away? Okay, I know that I have more than once. So, obviously this isn't like a treatise on all the different ways we respond, there's more than these, and it can get a lot worse than just these. Um, we respond to hurt in all sorts of unhelpful ways by hurting other people, grasping for control, calling everything toxic and just walking away, prolonged bouts of weeping and crying that just stay there forever. Um, addiction, there are plenty of ways that are unhealthy and unhelpful that we humans deal with being wronged. It can throw us off course, distort who we are, make us lose ourselves, lose our connection to others. It can make us bitter. So, this begs the question, Jesus was human, Jesus was wronged. How did he do it? What could we possibly learn from Jesus in this area? When I think about Jesus, I think of him as someone who was perfect in every way. I've learned that Jesus is God's self in human form. So ideally, I would love to think that a perfect person such as this would not suffer wrongs. So why would you wrong someone who's perfect? But obviously, we know the end of the story. He gets killed, so that is not true. But at least I would imagine that he, of all people, would have the thickest skin, right? Like, being wrong probably just rolls off Jesus because he truly knows his identity in the Lord and is, like, rock solid. And so why would it get to him? How could you get under Jesus' skin? He's Jesus. 
But if you've read the Gospels, that's not what we see from his story, is it? Jesus gets wronged all of the time, and still, he doesn't respond as a superhuman. He responds in very, very human ways. And all of those ways should probably be familiar to all of us here. Jesus hurts. Jesus gets ticked off. Jesus expresses need um, and regret, depending on undependable people. But through it all, Jesus loves and Jesus worships. And this is something that we can and must learn from as people following Jesus, or at least people curious about following Jesus in a fallen world. So here we dive into the story of Jesus. Um, the first point I'm going to make, the sort of lesson I'm trying to tease out of this story, is that Jesus hurts. Jesus is with us in our hurt, and he leads us away from paralysis, the kind of fetal position paralysis we can get in. Like I said before, Jesus was wronged on many levels. You got the socio-ethnic dynamics of like the Roman Empire and being a Jewish man. You have religious oppression from spiritually abusive people. You have systemic oppression of a busted criminal justice system that unfairly convicts him and sentences him to death. And yet, none of those wrongs quite cut the same as the wrong of the betrayal of a close friend. No matter your religious background, you probably have heard the name Judas the quintessential backstabber. And so this, there's an there's a interaction with Judas that we can find in the book of John, chapter 13, during the Last Supper. We talked about communion. They have taken communion. And here we have this passage. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I think the one who wrote this book calls himself that, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple, motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And what's interesting about this moment, this this naming of a betrayer in the mix of his friends is that it wasn't just the traitor who did him wrong. The people he thought were his real friends alongside that traitor also ended up wronging him too. Just a few verses later, we have Peter asking, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. You can hear it in the tone of Jesus' words in these passages. Jesus is affected by this. Jesus is hurt. Right before he identifies Judas as the betrayer, he's described as being troubled, troubled in spirit. And his question to Peter has pain written all over it. Will you really, will you really lay down your life for me? Jesus hurts. It doesn't just roll off of him, apparently. It pierces him, and deeply, when you are pierced, deeply by your hurt. Jesus doesn't look at you in judgment, I don't think, and say, hey, get up, get over. It's not that big of a deal. Know your identity in the Lord and keep it moving. I think he looks at us with compassion. I think he knows exactly what that feeling is like because he's felt it himself and he's felt it intimately. And yet, Jesus also 
takes us by the hand and invites us up and out of the kind of paralysis that can come from this hurt. In his moment of deep personal hurt, Jesus still chooses to stop short of full-on fetal position mode. He names his hurt, he embraces it, he feels it fully, and he doesn't let it paralyze him. The very next passage in the Gospel of John is a whole chapter of him ministering to his disciples. The very group that is actively hurting him. He's teaching them about what's true and what's to come, exhorting them to hold on and keep following him. Um, Then he continues on to the cross. He hurts and he keeps going. How in the world does Jesus do this? It seems really hard. Um, I think it's at least in part because Jesus is always, seems to be very aware and very connected to his purpose. The mission of Jesus' life is so much deeper and broader than these moments and this experience of this friend group. It's big and it's wide and it's beautiful, and I think Jesus really deeply believes in it. Jesus knows what he's here for. He knows he's here to love people, to deliver humanity. He's here sent on mission by God. He's tethered to a calling that extends beyond his lifetime. So I think it's out of obedience to his mission that Jesus chooses to bring love to the forefront and keep going, even as he feels all the feelings. I don't think it's just automatic. I don't think it's autopilot for Jesus just because he's God. I think Jesus actively chooses to tend to the love that he does have for his disciples, even as their love falls flat for him. He chooses to lean into love, even as the experience is hurt, because he knows that that's what he's here for. I think another way that Jesus manages to do this is that he doesn't cling to his offender. I think it's, it's striking to me that Jesus just lets Judas leave. The next passage after he hands him the bread, it says um, that Jesus tells him, hey, what you're about to do, do quickly. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. It was night. Bad things happen after that. He doesn't beg the offender to stay. He doesn't even expect the offender to change. This being Jesus, the one who changes sick people into healthy people and dead people into living people. He just lets Judas walk. I think that letting the offender walk is a lot harder than it seems. Um, But sometimes it's necessary for you to keep moving forward in your mission. I know that I've been in some friendships that have been really not super healthy, not like pretty hurtful to me. And for whatever reason, I've been in that experience where I haven't quite been willing to let them go. I had this one friendship that lasted for a really long time. It started out innocently enough. You know, there was like some chatting, I sang at a music thing. It's like, oh, you're in law school, can you help with like a legal thing? And I was like, sure, you know, turns into a friendship, but then over time becomes clear, ooh, this isn't, this isn't good. This isn't good for me. The other person was really not well mentally. Um, but for a long time, I kind of had that mindset of like, if I can just express more clearly how hurtful this is, maybe that'll turn it around. Um, If I can just try harder after each experience of hurt, maybe I'll just express it more or better, or if I show up perfectly. And then it kind of became like a bit of a habit. Like, I'm a bit used to this now. This is like a familiar narrative, and I'm not really sure how to untangle myself from it. It's kind of easier just to stay in this messed up situation than to do anything else about it, so I'm just going to be there. It came to a head at some point. I think something, one of those silly little straw that broke the camel's back, I think she told me that she was like, I hope you fail the bar exam. I was like, ah! 
And then at some point, something shifted where I was like, wait a minute. I could keep trying to stay and make it different. Or I could, like, surrender this in a different way and just let her be mean and wrong and let myself be hurt and not resolve it in my power. And that's kind of what happened. And then the friendship ended. Like, this is a sad story. But um, it was better that that letting go happened than the other thing of just staying in it. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with these codependent friendships or just me, but um, it happens, right? Where things really aren't okay, but you just can't bear the thought that things would be different. So then you just kind of stay and like nurse the hurt, but then stay in the situation and just kind of prolongs. Um, I think sometimes we just get so intertwined with our experience of hurt that it's actually easier to just stay there. But Jesus does model something different. He doesn't actually kick Judas out. Y'all notice that? But he does name the hurt to Judas's face, then lets Judas leave and doesn't chase after him, even if it means that Judas gets to stay wrong, even if it means that Judas tells a story where Jesus is the one in the wrong. He just lets him leave. So what does that mean for us? Before we move on to the next point, I just want to take a moment and consider here in the presence of our God who knows all things, where are you, if you are, could it be that you might be in a doubled-over experience of hurt right now? Maybe there's a personal, current experience of being wronged that's going on. It could be a really big one, it could be a small one. In this moment, let's invite the Holy Spirit to highlight any places where we might be curled around our hurt in ways that are actually keeping us from moving forward in our mission. In this moment, right now, I also want to ask you, invite us to ask ourselves honestly, do I remember the bigger work that God has called me to? Do you feel connected to that bigger work right now? Because I, I don't think Jesus is the only one with a mission here on earth. I think you are also. And I think that mission is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than this hurtful situation. And I feel like the Lord wants to invite us to stay connected to that, even in and through our experiences of hurt. So just sit with that question for a brief moment before we move on. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to your people. Tend to our hurting and sit with us in it. And would you be the one to take us by the hand and show us how to keep going? Amen. The second thought I'll tease out for us here is about anger. I think Jesus is with us in our anger, and he leads us away from cutoff. I don't think Jesus is just hurt by Judas. I think he's angry. There's a few versions of the Judas story. Each of the Gospels kind of tells the same thing, but in a different way. And in another version of this story you can find in the Gospel of Luke, and it reads a little bit differently. In this Gospel, it tells a story like this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you said so. There's a lot of subtext here. 
But as I see this, I think Jesus is mad. I think he's very mad. And he basically tells him directly, it would be better if this man had not been born. Surely you don't mean me. You said it, Judas. Jesus doesn't use curse words. But if he were non-perfect and did, this passage could have some expletives in it, given the, the energy. Um, the scriptures are actually full of examples of Jesus getting angry when people do him and his people wrong. Um, the, if you remember, the religious people who surrounded him were always doing him wrong. And there's more than one moment in the Gospels where he calls them out in this righteous anger. There's a whole chapter in Matthew 23 where he's, there's like a long series of scriptures that say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and then goes in on all the different things. There's that famous table flipping incident where he shows up at the temple, overturns the tables and the benches, tells them like, you're making this house a den of robbers, right? Jesus gets mad. When we are angry after experiencing wrong, we are not alone in it. Jesus knows intimately what that feeling is like. And he's not always afraid. He's not afraid to give it voice. But what is perhaps most stunning to me about Jesus' relation to anger is that it isn't accompanied by cutoff. These words of frustration are anger, and anger is spoken to Judas, are spoken to Judas at a dinner with Judas. He speaks out about the Pharisees, almost always in the presence of the Pharisees, and he seems to never really close the door to the idea of them being present where he is. This kind of openness and restraint is not a default way of being. I don't think even for Jesus. I think it's an intentional choice away from cutoff, to not choose cutoff. There's this funny passage in Matthew 21 where Jesus gets really mad at a tree. <laughs> Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, that you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree dies. <laughs> Jesus could totally treat people like that tree. Curse you! Never come near me again. Never bear fruit again. My hope in your ability to do anything good is cut off. But in the story of Jesus, he never, ever does that. He wisely doesn't go chasing his oppressors down or begging them to change um, or inviting them to dinner every day. Um, but he doesn't slam the door behind him either. We don't know how the Judas story could have ended up if he had chosen to repent. Judas ended that story early by taking his own life. But something about Jesus tells me that even with Judas, Jesus would have been open to having dinner with him again down the line. Jesus gets very mad with very good reason, and he still keeps the door open. For us people, to walk with Jesus in our anger and let him lead us away from cutoff is a really, 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 really hard thing to do. It's vulnerable. But I think it's actually a really powerful and beautiful thing too. I've wrestled in this talk with like, oh, what's the like bring it home story that I can tell about this exact experience? And to be honest with y'all, I think there's so many, but a lot of them are too raw and tender to tell in this particular context for a podcast. Um, but just trust me when I say that there are stories all around us of people trying to follow Jesus in this hard and narrow thing. And those stories are so hard, but they're so beautiful. There are stories in my own family of origin where cutoff actually makes the most sense as the reasonable response to anger. And yet, people persisting in relationship. 
stories from generations above me um, where people could have and should have, question mark, cut off relationship to an abusive father, for example. And yet, there's this openness that has actually borne good fruit down the line. I think there's a kingdom of God kind of fruit to Jesus' intentional way of expressing anger without cutoff. There's something deeply beautiful about our character and our dignity that gets preserved when we are real about our anger and still refuse to engage in cutoff. I think Jesus shows us that love doesn't always have to be squashed by anger. It can coexist with it. And I just want to say, I think this is actually impossible to do alone. But as we take Jesus' hand, I believe that he can and wants to walk with us there. So, another reflection moment. Where might the Lord be inviting you to get in touch with, listen to, and be honest about your anger? Maybe it's bottled up right now. Maybe it's only giving limited expression sideways. Might the Spirit of God be inviting you to listen to it? And bring it to him, maybe even to the source of that anger. Another question for your consideration. Where is the spirit of Jesus inviting you to walk forward with openness instead of cut off? Come Holy Spirit. Would you tend to us, your people, in the tender suffering of our hurt and our anger. Would you take our hand and help us walk through this life in openness to relationship, even with those who hurt us? Amen. Last thought before we close um, is about vulnerability. I think Jesus is with us in our vulnerability and need and leads us into continued dependence. The dinner with Judas and Peter and the other disciples ends in this really, really, really sad passage, describing the final moments before Jesus' arrest. He goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he chooses to bring his failure of friends with him. The passage reads, and Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over and pray. Then he grabs Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he falls to his face on the ground and prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returns to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep a watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. <sighs> so many of us are very used to doing really, really hard things alone. We've been burned before. It's a dangerous and vulnerable thing to invite someone into your need. But sometimes, if we're honest, it's actually just too hard to carry everything alone. I tried. I still try. But sometimes walking forward in this life is actually just too hard. And what we need to do is collapse on our face before God. And sometimes we just don't want to have to go there by ourselves. Jesus has been there. Jesus, the living God in flesh, knows what that feels like. 
that desperate need not to be alone in a really, really hard thing. His ask of his friends is so real and so vulnerable. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And it's so sad and so disappointing that they can't meet him there. They fail him. He returns to his disciples later and finds them sleeping. Peter, he asks this to Peter, the same guy he knows is about to betray him three times when he's questioned later about whether he's friends with Jesus or the authorities. But what's astounding to me about Jesus is that he doesn't say what I would say in that moment, which is, you know what, screw you, I'm gonna handle this by myself. He asks them two more times, please stay up with me. He says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He goes away a second time and prays, Father, please. He comes back, he finds them sleeping again. So he leaves them, goes away a third time, prays, saying the same thing. He returns to the disciples. Are you still sleeping? Look, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus' walk is one of intentional, continued vulnerability and dependence on other people, even after they fail him. He doesn't stop naming his need. Not, he doesn't stop naming it to God, and he doesn't stop naming it to other people. This feels literally impossibly painful. <laughs> like, surely this is unwise. Surely there must be a way where we can live that avoids us depending on people that are just going to hurt us again. <laughs> but I actually don't think that is the call of Jesus. I think the way of Jesus isn't just the way of triumphant strength from within that overcomes all the hard things. It is sometimes, but not always. I think the way of Jesus is also the way of choosing to depend on other people again and again and again. Clearly, Jesus valued not doing this hard life alone, even when it would have probably been a lot less disappointing to do so. If the God of the universe needs friends in his hardest hour, then probably so do we. If the God of the universe persisted in pursuing community, even when that community hurt him, then probably so can we. I have more stuff, but I'm going to skip it because it's long. Um, so taking a pause moment to just check in with God. Where might you be building some walls or strengthening your own self-reliance in ways that have you turning away from letting other people in? What could it look like to lean into your own vulnerability? One of the things I started doing a couple years ago that I didn't think was possible um, for me or was made any sense was to make a prayer list where you like send an email update to people being like, this is what's going on in my life. Will you pray for me? And when I um, was invited to do that, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But for whatever reason, internally, it was actually really hard to write it. And I'm like, hit send. Because I'm just like, why would I do that? Why would I just like, tell other people my business? Or like, ask them to pray with me. Like, just doesn't seem to make sense. But, you know, decided to do that. And every once in a while, I send one. And stuff like that. Like, could be, even be like a simple next step of like, letting people in to an experience that is hard that you otherwise would be resistant to. It doesn't have to be like, go call all the people who hurt you and like invite them to your house tomorrow. Um, yeah, like a way to open up a painful experience that you're walking through so that you don't have to walk through it alone, even knowing the risk. Maybe ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind a couple people you could invite into what you're carrying. What would it look like to ask them to stay up with you in a specific concrete way? 
And if you're disappointed from a recent or current experience of being let down in vulnerability, might Jesus be inviting himself to take your hand so you can open yourself up again to community? And maybe a next step for you is just to, to ask for that. Ask for the openness to that, right? Jesus is patient and tender with us in all this stuff. The last thing I'll say, and I'm going to invite the worship team up at this point, is that Jesus worships in the face of suffering. We all know how Jesus' story ends. It is very intense. Jesus gets arrested. Judas is the one who points him out to the soldiers with a kiss, no less. He is tried in an egregiously unjust criminal process. He is tortured. Peter does indeed betray him three times in a row, and he gets crucified. And in the moment he dies, what Jesus says is this. He calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. This phrase, I think, is what it means to worship, to entrust ourselves to God, let God envelop us fully, and be surrendered unto him. Thankfully, Jesus' death is not the end of the story. He raises from the dead after three days in the tomb. He conquers death itself by going through it, conquers injustice by going through it, conquers the arrogance of the religious systems and colonial structures of his day by fully committing himself to God in worship, fully committing himself to the way of love, even under oppression. Our story continues beyond this life. This is a very, very, very important thing to say, and I cannot not say it. This sermon is really stupid if this life is all there is. There is more. God is making all things new, and that work continues well beyond our lifetime. I'll read to you from Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is very, very important news. Injustice does not win. Oppression doesn't win. Only love wins. So in the meantime, in this chapter marked by injustice and oppression and being wronged by other people, our main job, we might not be able to do any of the stuff that Jesus does and stay open and do all this hard stuff. We might not. But what we can do is worship. Something we can do even on the cross, even when being mistreated, even when we have no answers, even when people close to us don't understand us, fail to support us in all the ways we actually need, we can always turn our gaze upward and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think there's power in that prayer. I believe that prayer, that act of worship, actually connects us to the big story of heaven in some Satan-defeating ways. So what we're about to do now is worship. And as we do, I want you to bring it all with you. You might not have words, you might not have strategies, you might have ideas. Maybe all you have is hurt or anger or vulnerability. But I know Jesus wants to be with us in it. And as we commit it all to God, there is power. 
to be had. called a prayer um, where folks during the service are listening to words and there's going to be in just a second a series of specific invitations to get prayer for this or get prayer for that or if you resonate with this word make sure to get up and get prayer if you're a prayer minister actually you can get up and line up along the side which is where you'll be when you pray for people but it feels like what God wants to do right now is to give us the gift of his company said at the beginning of this talk, we're in good company when we're hurting because Jesus hated you, hated me first. I think Jesus wants our company right now. I think he wants to be with us. I think we're used to being a little guarded. We're used to being self-protective, you know, all the things. But Jesus knows. He knows. He knows what it's like. So maybe you're here and you've never kept company with Jesus. Maybe you've only sort of like looked at Jesus from a distance. You've been curious about Jesus, maybe taken thoughtful notes about Jesus, read a couple movies, books or movies about Jesus. But, but I actually think that Jesus himself wants to keep company with you in ways that you haven't before or maybe in ways that you haven't in a while. Jesus wants to sit with you, be real with you. So I think especially if you feel like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not used to that. I actually think for you, the invitation is extra specific. No, please, draw near. Bring me all that stuff. And if that means you need to like release some feelings, if there's some crying, there is actually permission granted. No pressure in any way, shape, or form, but permission granted to just be with God. Don't worry about the people around you. Just be with God right now. And um, let him keep company with you.